0: So I worked for many years as a biomedical research librarian. I worked at a cancer institute in Seattle and at the National Institutes of Health. And I really came to understand cancer as a chronic relapsing progressive disease, which left in checked would most likely lead to death. So that was the framework that I worked in. And people have this misconception about librarians. They think of us in the back room shrinking. I was a very public librarian.
1: Please join us every week for a new episode of Understanding the Human Condition with Dr. James Flowers. Dr. Flowers and his most admired mentors, respected colleagues, and VIP guests For more information about Jay Flowers Health Institute and its concierge services, go to jflowershealth.com or dial 713-783-6655 and be sure to mention this podcast.
2: Welcome everybody to Understanding the Human Condition. I'm Dr. James Flowers, your host, and today I'm so excited that Eve Ruff is here. She's an absolute dear friend of mine, a colleague that I've worked with for many years, And Eve is a senior consultant with Clear Consulting. And hello, Eve.
0: Hi. Hi, Dr. Flowers. (laughs) How are you? I'm really well, thank you.
2: Even though you flew overnight, all night long from Seattle to Houston and landed here about 5 o'clock this morning.
0: I did. I still have a smile on my face.
2: (laughs) And you look marvelous. Thank you. How was your flight?
0: You know, I don't know. Because as soon as I get on that plane, I go to sleep. And then the flight attendant wakes me to get off. <laughs>
2: You're just like me. That's exactly what happened. I
0: think it's the reduced yeah. air in the plane or pressure, just wanting to avoid comfort. everything that's around me. Is, so.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Have you been flying a lot since COVID? You know,
0: I actually flew all the way through COVID. Mm-hmm. My work is such that I go to where people need me and yeah. there was a great need during COVID.
2: Yeah, there so was. I traveled quite a bit. Yeah. You and I have had so many conversations about COVID, how it affected really the human condition and how it affected lives across the world and mental health, alcoholism, alcoholism, drug addiction, all of that. How did you see the impact of COVID in your consulting life?
0: One of the things I saw that was particularly disturbing and hard for me as a woman was the number of women who were accustomed to being in the workforce who were now home with children and who found themselves resorting to drinking first yeah. later in the day than earlier in the day. So something that had been an innocuous habit kind of flipped a switch right. and really became a problem. So that was one thing I saw quite a bit of. Another thing I saw in my work with families is just that pressure building up within the family system to such an extent that without other outlets, we saw a lot of damage.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, when I refer to you, when I'm talking to families about you or even the clinicians here at Jay Flowers, I often refer to you as a family systems consultant. What is a family systems consultant for our audience to help them understand?
0: Well, from my frame of mind, what I mean when I call myself that is I am someone where substance abuse or mental health issues are impacting a family. I go in and really come to understand the dynamics of the family, perhaps multi-generational issues Mm -hmm. that have transcended the family, and come in with tools and suggestions not only to help someone in the family who's struggling with mm-hmm. substance abuse, but to help the remaining members of the family. Right. And the way I think about it is, if you think about an Alexander Calder mm-hmm. mobile, and if it's sitting in the museum and it's very still and it's reached stasis, mm-hmm. when you take an identified patient, someone with a substance mm-hmm. use disorder, for example, out of the system, everything goes a little cattywampus. So I come in while all those pieces are shaking And help to regain
2: That's such an amazing story because it's so true. You're right. You take that one piece off and the entire system is just in flux. And I really yeah,
0: and I really love seeing how things can stabilize and be prepared because if a loved one is off in treatment for a substance use issue when they come back into that system, if they have grown and the family hasn't grown, then we don't have healing take place.
2: Absolutely. And the identified patient comes home, steps back into the system to an unwell family. And oftentimes we see higher rates of relapse at that point.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. The flip side, conversely, is also true. One thing that I will often tell family members is I can't promise them that their loved one is going to get well. But I can tell them assuredly that if they do the work, they can see things from a different framework.
2: Absolutely. And respond differently to their and loved respond one. respond differently. That's right. Absolutely. How in the world did you decide to become, you are, a, you have a master's degree, I think, in library computer science. I do. You were a librarian for 25 years. How in the world did you decide to get into the consulting world in recovery?
0: Well, it's an interesting trajectory. Yeah. yeah. So I worked for many years as a biomedical research librarian. I worked mm-hmm. at a cancer institute in Seattle and at the National Institutes of Health, and I really came to understand cancer as a chronic, relapsing, progressive disease, mm-hmm. which left unchecked would most likely lead to death. Mm-hmm. So that was the framework that I worked in. Sure. And people have this misconception about librarians. They think of us in the back room shrinking I was a very public librarian, and I was a linker between biomedical knowledge and researchers and consumers who needed knowledge. So I was very out there. Part of my schema for helping my clinicians who needed knowledge was I kept the bar in the Mm -hmm. library, and I would have a drink.
2: At the library? At
0: the library with every scientist that had downtime in his experiment or a clinician who came in needing an answer to a question. So what everyone saw was that, yeah, I'd have a drink now and then with someone. Sure. What they didn't know is I was drinking with everyone. Yeah. So that led me down the path of substance use yeah. and an alcoholism problem in my 40s, mid-career. Yeah. Wow. And I was very, very fortunate to work for a scientist who said, here's six months, figure out what you want to do, but by all means get better. Yeah, yeah. So I did, and when I came back from a course of treatment and Mm -hmm. some aftercare and did some work with my own family, Mm -hmm. we traveled to India for a while, and I said, I can't go back to what I was doing. Mm -hmm. I'm really called to work with the disease that I have, Mm -hmm. which also is chronic progressive relapsing.
2: Right. Absolutely. So
0: crazy, but... I never look back and question the decision.
2: No, of course not. And you are one of the nation's leading family consultants. And you, every time I talk to you, you're either on your way to the airport or on your <laughs> way away from an airport traveling to some corner of the United States. And oftentimes when I talk to you, you're headed to New York or you're in New York and you have an affinity for New York because you're from New York.
0: You know, I am a New Yorker through and through. I grew up in Manhattan, the Bronx, and ultimately the suburbs. But you can leave New York, but I think a piece of your heart always stays there. So I'm happiest in Dumbo in Brooklyn, walking the streets like I did as a child.
2: Yeah, that's amazing. Recently at a small conference in New York with Laura Smith, I believe, she had a, hosted a small conference and you and I were there and you said, "Why don't you stay in Brooklyn at the one hotel?" <laughs> and I was like, "I'm going to stay in Brooklyn." And I was like, oh, "Yeah, sure." So we both stayed in Brooklyn and we walked like part of the streets where you grew up and it was so fun. It was spending really time fun. with someone from there that has the passion for New York that you do. But what was your childhood like growing up in New York?
0: Well, it was really different than most childhoods. I grew up in a communist family. Mm-hmm where we had meetings in our house late into the night. I would hear discourse, I would hear arguments, and then I would see grown men make up. Yeah. And so I didn't grow up afraid of very much right. because of what I was exposed to. My parents thought it was really important for us to have jobs mm-hmm. as early as possible. And I didn't want to go the way of most of my schoolmates who were candy stripers in hospitals. Of course not. <laughs> so I got a job for working for Department of Public Works in the back of a trash truck. Are you
2: kidding? And
0: just helping to pick up whatever fell to the sidewalk yeah. afterwards. And this how is, old were you? I was 14. Okay. This is also where I was first exposed to marijuana mm-hmm. because all the guys in the back of the truck were smoking marijuana oh, sure. at the end of the yeah. day. And it wasn't something that appealed to me at the time. Yeah. But I saw life. Yeah. And I saw the richness of life. And like I said earlier, I learned to embrace people of all different stripes.
2: Sure. Absolutely. And you had quite artistic father.
0: I did have an artistic father. Yeah. My father was an inventor. He did smoke marijuana uh-huh. all day, every day. Mm-hmm. And when other kids had parents who went off to work, my father slept most of the day. I'd come home from school at three o'clock. He was just waking up and he'd be at the kitchen table, drinking coffee, smoking a three pack of Pall Malls and working on his next invention. And he did some pretty cool stuff.
2: He did. Do you mind if I mention a few? No,
0: I don't mind at all.
2: (laughs) So, you know, not very many people know this about you, but or your family. But your father invented this is so wild. When you get tinfoil out of the tinfoil box, your father invented the razor that cuts you. That cuts you every time and has the patent on that. And
0: had the patent on
2: that. And your father also invented the modern day coffee cup lid Mm -hmm. that folds back from the top and then you can close it and your father held the patent on that.
0: Yes, he had a really, do you know who Rube Goldberg was? I don't. He was an inventor and they used to make these kids models. Like you'd roll a marble and the marble would roll the wheel and the wheel would make the mouse run. Mm -hmm. And that's how we thought about my father. He just had this mind that ran on a different path.
2: And did didn't he invent the grocery bag with a handle? The shopping bag. The shopping bag. The
0: shopping bag with handles for Avon Company. Remember Ding Dong Avon Company?
2: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: And he was an embarrassment to us as kids because he was never dressed. Right.
2: (laughs) He just sat at the kitchen table, smoked pot, and invented things.
0: And invented things.
2: So what was your when you say he was an embarrassment? Were you really embarrassed or were you thinking, oh my gosh, my dad's crazy? Or were you just fascinated by his mind?
0: I didn't come to really appreciate his mind until I went off to college. And then he started this letter writing campaign with Mm -hmm. me. The way, because phone bills Mm -hmm. were expensive and it still was long distance rates. So my father started writing letters to me. And they really were the first love letters that I ever received. And he talked about. The day I was born, hanging from a fire escape in New York City, <laughs> you know, shouting like a gorilla because he was so <laughs> happy. And so his letters to me really divulged mm-hmm. his mind. Yeah. And what my mother used to say is that we were so alike, my father mm-hmm. and I, that we just couldn't get along when mm-hmm. we were young. Sure. And then because he outlived my mom. For so many years, we just became closer and closer as the time went on.
2: Yeah. You definitely have your father's artistic brain.
0: I think so. You do.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I could tell so many stories about your brain right now. We're not going to go there today. But that's so amazing. What an amazing family you grew up in. And in fact, you grew up Jewish. You are Jewish. You were at, it was during Passover that you had your very first drink of alcohol.
0: It was, and I was eight years old, and during the Passover service, you set a place at the table for someone who has nowhere else to go, and you provide a glass of wine for this prophet. Mm -hmm. And my grandfather used to drink that glass of wine, and the kids would think, oh my gosh, the prophet came to our house. (laughs) So when I was eight years old, my grandfather let me in on his little secret that Ah. he was the one who drank the wine, Mm -hmm. and he said, why don't you drink it this time? And you were eight. I was eight. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that's disgusting. But I drank it. And I will tell you, something washed over me. I mean, I'm 68 years old and I remember this experience like it was yesterday. Mm -hmm. It was a salve. Everything about the world just dripped off of me. Now, mind you, I did not become an alcoholic until my 40s. But I think the disease was progressing within me from eight years on.
2: absolutely. I've always thought that was, I knew that story and I thought it was an amazing story that you tell that eventually you were an alcoholic. And you talked about your boss, the scientist, that said, Eve, it's time to get some help. Here's six months. What an amazing gift.
0: Oh, it was an incredible gift. His name was Robert Day and he was the director of the center. Interestingly, the story comes full circle. He gave me this amazing gift. And many years later, when I was working in the treatment industry, he had an adopted daughter who was struggling with alcoholism. And he called me to help find placement for her. Wow. And I had the opportunity. You know, usually you're paying it forward. Sure. In this case, I actually had the opportunity to give it right back to them. Absolutely. Placed her in treatment. And we're still in touch, even though Dr. Day is no longer with us I'm still in touch with his daughter.
2: That's amazing. I love that story. Yeah. And what do you do in your life? You work with a lot of stress. You work with families who are really torn apart and families that are going through things that are unimaginable with addiction. How do you keep yourself healthy?
0: You know what came to mind first? Yeah. The very first thing I said, and I can't recommend it for everyone, is I have a six year old grandson.
2: <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> and when I need stress reduction, all I have to do is say, Can we play Legos?
2: <laughs> that's perfect. So
0: that's a little bit tongue in cheek. But I mean, I have a really rigorous Al Anon program. Yep. And I was a latecomer to Al Anon. Yeah. I had someone who said to me that if I wanted to do this work, I really had to understand where I ended and where my families began. That's right. I have a Peloton. I have an incredible cadre of friends who don't work in the industry, mm-hmm. who are really supportive and don't want to hear stories. Right. Yeah. Unless they're really good stories, yeah. then they want to hear yeah. them.
2: And so that allows you to get away. and. Yeah. I'm using the word normal, but be normal, be out of your field, be yourself and talk about other things than recovery.
0: But I think because of my own personal journey of Mm -hmm. recovery, because I use a lot of the tools that I learned in treatment, Mm -hmm. meditation Mm -hmm. on a regular basis, exercise on a regular basis, Mm -hmm. good nutrition to the best of my ability, given that I travel so much. I just really work to have that peripatetic balance in my life.
2: Absolutely. Peripatetic. I can tell you're a librarian. <laughs> <laughs> I love that.
0: You know, it, I was going to tell you one other, just this great story. Yeah. I worked for a woman early on in my first internship, and she gave me this visual. She said that when she, it was a women's treatment center, mm-hmm. a 24-bed women's treatment center, and I was an inpatient counselor intern. Right. And she said to me, when you walk in this building, the first thing you do is put on a Teflon raincoat. Wow. And she said, it's semi-permeable. So what needs to come in will come in. Mm-hmm. But everything else has got to be allowed to just drip right off you. Otherwise, you will not be
2: able to do this work. That's exactly right. Similar story. I had a, one of my graduate professors uh, often talked about the hat professional hat and leaving the office and going home on a Friday afternoon or an evening and being able to take that hat off. And he said, the advice that I want to give you going into this field is every day when you leave your office, whether you're wearing a hat or not, put your hand on your head and take the hat off and place it on your desk and pat it and tell it you'll see it tomorrow. Oh, I love that. And I've done that for 32 years.
0: Yeah, I love that.
2: And it does help. It actually helps. And I love the story of the Teflon. Yeah. Yeah. So tell everybody, how in the world did you get from New York to Seattle? That's a big difference.
0: It's a big difference. In a blue Ford van with a backpack and a boyfriend. In
2: 1978.
0: 1978. So now you all know how old I am. (laughs) We came, I married that that boyfriend, Mm -hmm. and he's the father of one of my children, and he's still a dear friend. We came to climb Mount Rainier. Wow! I had this vision Mm -hmm. of climbing that mountain, 14,410 feet of that mountain. We were living in Philadelphia and in New York, Mm -hmm. and we trained on city streets and city buildings. We climbed the World Trade Center Tower with 40-pound backpacks on so that we could train to climb Mount Rainier.
2: That's amazing.
0: And after going to Mount Rainier, Mm -hmm. we went to this beautiful restaurant on the banks of Puget Sound, and I called my mother, and I said, Mom, I am not coming back east. I am staying here in Seattle. It's just too beautiful to leave. I mean, there was no one in Seattle. Boeing was in trouble. We didn't lock our cars. I didn't have a key to my house when I first bought my house. I mean, it's a very different place now, but I mean, it was Shangri-La."
2: So what would your mom say when you said, I'm not coming home?
0: My mother said, do they have doctors in Seattle? <laughs> she was so worried. Yeah, I bet she was. Doctors, bagels, you know, that yeah, kind of stuff. Exactly. That's right.
2: That's amazing. What an amazing life you've lived. And, uh, you know, real quick, going back to Mount Rainier, one of the things I love is that when you do travel and when you're flying home, you always take a picture of Mount Rainier and post it on your social media account. And it just shows your love for that. And every time you fly over it, you must have a little bit of memory of the day that you climbed it for the first time.
0: You know, I have memories of that day. And then I was really fortunate about 15 years ago. So about, you know, five or seven mm-hmm. years into my career, I did a fundraiser for the treatment center, mm-hmm. this women's treatment center. We called it one step at a time. Okay, And I told a group of women that if they were able to amass a solid 12 months of sobriety Mm. that they could train with me to climb Mount Rainier. Wow! And we called it one step at a time. It was an amazing experience. We did not summit, but there was more instruction in the fact that we were unable to summit. Sure. And the parallels, climbing that mountain, preparing, Mm -hmm. doing the work, taking it one step at a time having to be able to get down the mountain, not just up the mountain. The parallels were so many, and this small group of women, there were about 13 of them and some guides and me, are still all in close touch. So So that mountain often is my higher power.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I see that. Absolutely. What advice do you give families looking for help for their loved one We'll wrap up and say, I'd like to know, what advice do you give families during their tumultuous times of I don't know what to do? What's the steps they take?
0: Well, the very first thing I tell them is that if they can trust the process and if they don't have hope, let me carry the hope for them Mm -hmm. while they are waiting. So that's step number one. I encourage them to do all the kinds of things that I do to stay well. Because if they are not well, then they can't be there
2: That's right. for their family members.
0: Yeah. I'm a big reader and I'm a big proponent of doing somatic work. Yeah. Yeah. So I get families, not only the coaching that I can offer, but I get them therapeutic support from a somatic standpoint. Mm-hmm. And I tell them to let go of control. Absolutely. Yeah.
2: You know, I'm so happy that I had this time to be able to introduce you. You already, everyone in the United States in this industry knows Eve Ruff. But for the families out there that don't know Eve Ruff, what an amazing introduction to really allow people to understand who you are as an individual and how you work with families as a consultant. And thank you for taking time.
0: Well, thank you so much. Yeah, Thank you so much for this opportunity.
2: If you're open to it, I'd love for you to tell people how they can reach you.
0: Oh, of course I am.
2: You're so busy, but how do people? No, reach I'm you? not
0: so busy. <laughs> and what? I, and the truth about me is, I have really good boundaries, mm-hmm. but I also answer my phone twenty four seven because yeah. I know that when somebody is struggling, the immediacy of a response is really important. Yes. And as you know, I can go from a dead sleep to having a coaching <laughs> conversation in Just no like time. Just like that. So I would say the very best way to reach me is through my cell phone, and I'm glad to give that number. You bet. It's area code 206-276-4472.
2: Excellent. And if you have any questions for Jay Flowers, look at our website, jflowershealth.com, or you're welcome to call us at 713-783-6655. And Eve, again, my dear friend, I love you to death. And I absolutely adore working with you. And you have helped so many families that I have worked with, continue to work with. And I look forward to collaborating with you and your team for many, many years.
0: Thanks, James. And, you know, working with Clear Consulting team members
2: is a great privilege. Yeah, absolutely. I love the entire team. So thank you for doing this. Okay. Yeah. All right. See ya.
0: And I'd like to remind everyone watching or listening to us that there are numerous platforms to find our podcasts, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Please share this episode on social media or with someone that you think it could help.
2: Absolutely.
0: And we remind you also that a clear diagnosis is key to the most effective treatment possible.
2: Yes, it is. See you next Thanks week. Thanks again, Robin.
0: Thank yeah. you.